We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. So maybe, oh yeah, because we don't have Joe doing like the All right. do you want cor- me to do it? corralling of the... All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to, what is this number of the floodcast? 20-something. 20-something. 2020. COVID cast or floodcast in lockdown, where we're all being very careful. <laughs> we are very, we're, I, I, we're being very careful. The same, we're doing this digitally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so, who have we got here today? Uh, it's Mark. Um, yeah, it's me again. Hello. Um, I just quit my job. Yeah. <laughs> it was my last day today and I'm great. So, Floodcast has really been the experience of Mark employed, unemployed, employed, and then unemployed again. <laughs> One of the few people happy about losing their job. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I'm very unhappy that I sort of still have a job, but yeah. Callum, by the way. Um, <laughs> hi. Uh, my name's Rob. I've been on a few times. Yeah. Robbie was on the inaugural Floodcast, actually. Uh, no, that was I was the first. It was um, about the Accord, funnily enough. Uh, <laughs> and really, it's a, a beautiful circle. segue into. So basically, oh me, um, I'm me. Uh, I tweeted, I'm Max Chandler Mather. <laughs> I don't know why I said my last name. Um, <laughs> just to well, clarify, not that other Max yeah. that you occasionally hear on the floodcast. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the bad. So if you ever hear a bad opinion from a Max, it's not me. Uh, so we're here to talk about basically the uh, broader economic, social, union, government response uh, to the COVID economic uh, recession and downturn. Uh, I'm sure a few of you have been seeing talks of a new accord online, Sally McManus's new love affair with the federal government, uh, as reported by the media. Uh, the interesting union res- tactical response and their um, uh, heroic stand against employers uh, across the country. Demanding pay cuts. Yeah. Uh, Parody. <laughs> Quite literally, <laughs> demanding pay cuts. Parody. Um, <laughs> not the parody to that. I mean the heroic stand. Uh, so we're here to talk about, cover all of that. Uh, and maybe we can start with uh, basically what the current economic situation is in Queensland and Australia. Uh, it is a bit difficult because, uh, as Robbie was saying off air, uh, there's been no budgets. All of the budgets have been delayed. So, getting really uh, good figures uh, on uh, what the economic situation in Queensland and Australia is is difficult. What we do know is that uh, there's been substantial job losses. Grattan Institute issued a report a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, predicting that 3.6 million people would lose their jobs. Uh, there's been some analysis that suggests uh, that uh, the real unemployment figure now is probably hovering around 10 or 12% once you factor in people that have left the workforce. Uh, and Greg Jericho on The Guardian has written some good stuff about that, even though the government reported unemployment figure is somewhere around 6 or 7%. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, levels of personal debt are going to uh, rear up at some point and cause a serious issue. Uh, but it seems like the really terrible uh, economic impact hasn't isn't hitting us just yet. Uh, we do know that lots of more people are falling into housing stress. We do know that uh, the broader shocks 
to the economy are going to occur probably in unexpected ways because of a uh, few economists have talked about this. The weird thing about this crisis is it's really at the basis of value production, i.e. labour, where this crisis is occurring. People just can't work uh, and as a result can't participate in the consumer economy and things like that. So you're getting weird things where actually the latest export figures suggest that uh, Australian exports are doing okay. Same with finance as well. Yeah. Um, there's been some chat that I've read about about like um, a recovery in financial sectors as opposed to recovery in the economy as a whole. Um, stocks and stuff like that are performing fine or performing better than they were in the midst of the crisis. But at the same time, people's actual work and conditions have stayed probably the exact same in that same period. Or gotten worse. Uh, Robbie, did you want to add anything? Well, I think the I read something today that um, they were saying. So the re- the recession we had to have the Paul Keating you know, recession. I think um, that was a one point five decrease in GDP. So if you think about that and the impact that that had, which was quite significant on employment and all the rest of it, and they're talking about a ten percent decrease in GDP this time. So um, I think that yeah, that sort of puts it into context. Um, and what does that mean materially for people? Because I think everyone's, there's certainly been a lot of job losses already, but I'm not sure about our listeners, but it seems like from afar to be this thing that's hitting in almost like a slow motion train crash. Like it's not, it's not something like we're not seeing, we haven't seen lots like say the GFC in the United States, like thousands of people all of a sudden becoming homeless. Because I think a part of that, it's been um, tempered by the sort of of out-of-the-blue Keynesianism that the Scott Morrison government has used. And because, you know, they just opened up to a degree the job seeker um, requirements, you know, because I sort of do some work around that area, they sort of lifted a lot of those requirements and made it a lot easier for a lot more people to get in. Plus job keeper and deferrals and everything, but it really it's just kicking it the can down the down road. the road, and so it still hasn't resolved the fact that we have this two hundred plus percent private household debt to GDP ratio, which is still just hovering there like this big fucking rock that is just waiting for something for gravity to kick in to kick in. So it's still just hanging there. So I feel like we're just yeah in this sort of limbo until something just falls out. Because we talked about a lot, a lot about this even prior to the COVID crisis, that there was an economic crisis coming. Like we thought, well, we weren't sure, but it, it certainly a lot of people thought that the Australian economy was in a bad way. Marx has always said it's an economic that's crisis. That's true. Predicted <laughs> ten out of the, predict ten out of the last three. That's right. And this is one of the three um, geniuses. Uh, but you know, the conditions were there in terms of declining wages, t- unemployment was ticking up, personal debt, lots of other things, increasing housing stress. Uh, Property, the property market was sort of quite volatile, uh, and so there's not really any shock absorber there. If, if the recession really does, prop, like what it sounds like, a ten percent reduction in GDP, what do does, like what do we think that's going to look like? Like, are we going to see lots of people, homeless people, on the street, or is it going to be more hidden than that? Well, there's a point at which the job keeper and the job seeker arrangements are going to end, and at the moment, the federal government is quite adamant about them ending. Um, I suppose as we get closer to that, we're going to actually see whether they are um, willing to pull the pin on it and return a lot of people who probably still aren't going to go back to work um, with JobKeeper. They're probably not going to be able to keep their jobs because a lot of businesses aren't operating in the same way 
And then with Job Seeker, there's a lot of people who are still living, going to go straight back to the poverty line, or well below the poverty line. Um, so I think that might be a point in which we might actually see the economy respond a bit more dramatically when it was, oh, oh, we're actually only being kept up by this government stimulus. I saw some interesting figures that um, uh, that uh, one of the things keeping the economy afloat, apart from ex- exports, uh, you know, because of the private sector was uh, was ended up becoming a drag on the economy, uh, was the NDIS spending. Uh, that it was a the major, essentially, act functioned over the last year or so as a major economic stimulus, um, or a major driver of growth in the economy, which I thought was interesting. And also, the Reserve Bank governor has issued a pretty stern warning about September and when JobKeeper and the increased uh, job seeker, whatever the fuck it is now, Such rate drop off. That it's going to, as sort of Mark alluded to, a pretty serious. But it's all good because cool. we got. Job maker now. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably brings us next to the union fight back stuff and the and the broad progressive response because I think the question then becomes, well, what does the Mor- why is the Morrison government so comfortable, well, seemingly, with the idea of essentially austerity, po- a functional, you know, a sort of smattering of austerity po- politics, which he sort of presaged in his latest uh, speech, uh, you know, and it seems to me that maybe he feels quite comfortable because he've observed the sort of like uh, really quite pathetic response from sections of the union movement and Sally McManus and this sort of bizarre desire to jump into bed with industry and the government um, really quite uh, willingly and uh, and quickly. So, like, Max, what it, has it's been... Just like- a slumber party, you get your best friends over. That's you know, right. It's, it's like the, that that Australian Financial Review article was their best friends forever now. So it's just going to be slumber parties. For <laughs> yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? Like the she was like, oh, I can't really remember when he called, but it was like in the middle of this, and we're just like we went to a meeting, and he gave me you know some nice words, and then I thought, oh, you know what? Let's throw workers under the bus together. This is <laughs> that is her. It's all such a blur, honestly. I reckon it was around the fifteenth of March. The Christian called the meeting of unions and the chief medical officer was outlining the strategy. We got insight into actu- into where we were actually going to suppress the thing, COVID. And and I said to Christian I said to Christian, the union movement's prepared to put aside all hostilities and work together with the government and with employers. Oh, Jesus Christ. I think it's but it's I don't it's, it's not that surprising, right? So no. the the strategy of the ACTU and this is, you know, like it's not the strategy of all unions, but the strategy of the ACTU has been to um not campaign industrially, I like organizing through workplaces and building power that way, but campaign for legislative reform as this kind of like weird shortcut to addressing the structural weaknesses that they face. So mm. um Sally McManus talks a lot about bringing ending casual employment and bringing back permanent and permanent part-time employment as a way, I think, because I guess the assessment is is that if you get rid of casual employment, it will be easier. People will stay at workplaces longer and it'll be easier to recruit them. So I think... Isn't it also... I mean, like, the thing about addressing casual employment is it's like it's like a whole-scale uh, winning back of a lot of basic rights that were won under permanent contracts, sick leave, etc. Yeah, and I guess the strategy around that is not to, organ- like from the ACTU at least, is to not organise casual workers to fight for those things 
in their industries. It's to um, bring it about through um, technocratic legislative reform. Um, and so, I mean, I think, you know, it's as dis- as despicable and as, you know, weird as it is, it's very much within their strategy um, to show that in a crisis that can be useful to the government because they, they will ask for trade-offs. Um, and I guess, and I think that's that's the plan, right? That's the that's the plan and it's it's not going to work it has never really worked it didn't um, work when the union movement the was its strongest no so i think um oh no are we going to go in and talk to the accord now or do you want to talk about the summary of of union responses well let's do the i think i i like the idea of doing a bit of a because um, people might not have covered them all but the sort of broader summary of the union responses so i've got to, i've pulled a few together um so there's the NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, um, their framework that they um, pulled together and try to negotiate. And so all of these things, all of the things that have been negotiated have been negotiated between national unions and the national representative bodies of the employers. Um, so it's, ne- it's not being done at a lower level. So it, it's... It's an- funny. It's sort of like a return to some form of industry bargaining. Like it's, you know, and for the, for those who don't know, like... We can't. The one of the big things in change the rules was that uh, one of the big problems with union organising was that uh, we had switched from industry wide bargaining to in- enterprise bargaining. And enterprise bargaining is you negotiate pay deals. You negotiate pay deals at the level of the enterprise or business. So uh, you don't. It's almost like a particular business as opposed to an industry. And previously, when what would happen is say amongst. Uh, uh, hospitality workers, they would end, there would be an industry-wide bargaining process and the payment, pay and de- uh, conditions that you agreed on would apply to everyone in the industry. Uh, and now, uh, but then the unions were like, well, once we switched to enterprise bargaining, which, by the way, was part of the union agreements, unions wanted that in the uh, union, no, I wouldn't say union leadership. Like it was brought in under labour. Brought in under labour, uh, which led to whole-scale <laughs> defeat of the union movement, amongst other things. Now they say, well, no, we, uh, times have changed. Their line is that condition, business and economic conditions have changed where enterprise bargaining was no longer useful. It was never useful. Uh, and But it was there for a whole, like, what, 13 years? It was, like, apparently it was great, but it was only very recently that it got yeah. bad. And under that period, the share of, um, the, of income going to wages declined. But anyway, sorry to bite in, but only to say that now what's happening in this process that you're describing is what unions wanted in the Change the Rules campaign just last year. They were saying, if we got this, then all of a sudden wages would skyrocket and we'd be given all of this extra power. Oh, yeah, because it's acceptable because they're, they're proposing... Decreases in wages. Mm. Um, so there's the NTU framework, which I believe has been defeated, but I think the not union buying. the union is still pushing it. They're just they're not pushing it nationally. I believe they're pushing it campus by by university by university. Um, but there was Can we go like, through just a bit what that was. The framework. Yeah. Um, and maybe I, a bit of the history. I'm not hugely across I've got a the framework. Bit here just to like mark and probably like, so basically NTU at a national level was negotiating with. Um, apparently about 38 Australian universities. Um, so a national agreement was happening. Um, it was proposing a salary cut of between 5 and 15% uh, to full-time ongoing staff in the hope that it would save some 12,000 jobs. At the same time, though, a lot of the pushback came from actual members. Is One is we don't want a pay cut, and two, that it threw casual workers and a lot of non-full-time staff 
right under the bus in order to save those jobs. Um, but what's happened in the meantime is there was a, a movement of members to try and push back against it. Um, I I don't know a lot about the whole campaign because I'm not currently a university worker. Well, I think there was, there was supposed to be a national vote on it um, and a whole bunch of the larger, like the more organized university campuses with large union memberships voted against it. So it became pretty clear that there was probably going to be a vote. They weren't going to win or they weren't going to, the union leadership was either not going to win or if they won, it would have been very close yeah. and wouldn't have really been a resounding victory. Um, so it wouldn't really have given them the, you know, the ability to, to destroy the opposition and continue. Um, and they were attempting, like, quite brutally, were denying any uh, rights of like actual members to say maybe we don't like this deal. There's something I and the, like- well, the other thing that it in that it brought in was um, was that there there'd be some sort of national group to oversee the implementation of the framework, which included union representatives and university hierarchy people. Um, and a lot of the larger unis, the, the quite wealthy unis, were opposed to that because it would have meant that those people would be making decisions about the running of those universities, mm-hmm. the union representatives. So a lot of the, yeah, like UQ, Mel- Melbourne Uni, um, the really the quite wealthy ones, um, like the group of eight, I think they're called, were a lot of them opposed it for that reason. Um, and so what it meant was that a lot of university managements and, you know, was able to position themselves as like being like, oh, we think this goes too far. Yeah, it was incredible. Because um, yeah. so a really crucial moment was when RMIT came out and was like, this will destroy the lives of so many of our members and we just can't countenance it. And it was this bizarre moment where like the union bosses, sorry, the university bosses were coming out and being like, don't hurt workers' unions. <laughs> and like there's other universities that don't have many uni- any many international students, right? So their income stream wasn't that impacted, and so they were like, "Well, if it's a national framework, it kind of imposes on us. It potentially imposes on us a, th- a thing that we don't actually need." Yeah. Um. So I guess that was an issue. Um. Anyway, so that's so that was that one. I don't know if we want to go. Well, so more in the end, that. it was about 17 universities came out against the deal. Um. Which was, it's just like, it's basically, it's pretty hilarious that all these universities come out and said, actually, this deal is pretty bad. It was precipitated by a couple and then when they realized the union was, had literally no support for their deal, um, they all quickly got in line. But the NTU is still adamant that now the universities are also screwing workers. Um, well, I mean, they will in a sense. The two things I just wanted to say on this before we move on. One was I got a message from an NTU member who was like, I actually think this is probably a good thing in the end, this defeat. Because basically because what this has done, like the NTU leadership's attempt to sort of betray members, really, from the perspective of a lot of members, and I think reality, uh, forced a lot of union members to organise in a wildcat fashion. Uh, And what this has done is disconnected a large section of the NTU membership from, uh, from the leadership of the bureaucracy of the NTU. And he thinks, basically... He was like, well, probably what this will mean is a ver- much more th- uh, vibrant democratic union culture, uh, almost against the wishes of the union leadership. Like, you know, what's funny about this is like they've brought, spent a, a lot of unions have spent years with these failed like membership drive strategies, 
All it took was just overreaching and attempting to betray them at a level that even for a lot of like university workers is not acceptable. And the second thing I just wanted to say was when the within when this NTU stuff was kicking off, I think a lot of people must have thought like who were a bit involved in thinking about union strategy. It was like, okay, so you've got a situation where like um you know, uh universities are in real financial strife. Um the last sort of income stream is teaching basic domestic students, etc. Like the university industry is quite uh, uh, vulnerable, and the federal government is quite vulnerable to not having more job losses. Like the the wholesale collapse of the tertiary sector, one of the biggest um, income streams for the Australian economy, is not viable because if it collapses, then they can't restart the international student pipeline next year. Whenever the economy grows, or for up. multiple, a lot of universities, I mean, multiple years before they. Recovered from something yeah. like that, and then I'm and so but, but just to quickly, you're in a fucking amazing bargaining position. Like fuck's sake, like use that. Why not go? Like now would be the time, surely, to be like, all right, members, no job losses, no pay cuts. Morrison pays for it, and like, and we are all going out, and the the public demand is the federal government has to step in and cover it because workers are not going to pay for this crisis and you fucking university bosses uh, who all go to the same fucking parties as people like Morrison, you fucking fuckers work it out. Uh, and like, uh, if it's... <laughs> I just got distracted by some vicious hand sing- singling. <laughs> <laughs> but the, well, I think the other thing is that now they're in a situation where it's been defeated and they're in a much weakened yeah. bargaining position, right? So you... It, to fight back now, you're fighting back from a weakened position because you've started off from a weakened I, position to begin with. Like, am I correct in saying that was JobKeeper like kept? It wasn't. They didn't it wasn't extended, extended to the university, to university sector. No. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Is like you've got a position where like the government has deliberately decided to not fund this sector so that the like you know universities would cut and decimate the. Uh, like tertiary education workforce, but so it's like your your demand is actually no, we'll help you do that, as opposed to like extend JobKeeper to this massive yeah, industry. A simple demand, and also what happened. The effect of that is that the union leadership then ended up facilitating a policy like a regressive policy on behalf of the Morrison government. They're like, they're like, okay, Morrison makes this call. The union leadership is like, we're going to discipline our membership into taking this. Basically, it's insane. So those are the two things I just wanted to. And talk so, the, oh, do you want to go? And so there was there was one that it hasn't this one hasn't been discussed that much. Um, so the United Workers Union hospitality part. So for the United Workers Union, it's quite new. It was a merger between United Voice and the National Union of Workers last year. Um, my experience, with National Union of Workers has been there quite good, um, and quite good at organising in the workplace. Um, my experience with United Voice, which I was a member for for many years is that they're fucking terrible um, and they don't give a shit about casual employees um, and outside they're kind of bastions of of like, like casinos and some pubs and clubs even hosp- hospitality specifically um, they really have no interest or no strategy to organise the kind of dispersed casual workforce and hospitality um, and they never really did so um, not great so they signed it they did a they did an emergency deal through fair work with the Australian Hotels Association, um, which reduced full-time employees' minimum ordinary hours to 22.8 hours per week. Um, and with a, with a part-time employee, permanent part-time employee, could work an average of 60% of their guaranteed hours per week. 
Um, staff uh, would have to work across classifications, provided it was safe to do so, um, and they had the necessary qualifications. Employers could also direct employees to take annual leave with 24 hours notice, um, but provide flexibility with leave at half pay. So effectively, that's a, a pay cut for a full-time worker. That's like a 50% pay cut. Probably more because a lot of um, hospitality works obviously work more than 40 hours a week. Um, and so, yeah, so that's effectively a 50% pay cut that was negotiated through, um, like between the peak body and the union through the through Work Australia. Um, I think even that they even did that before JobKeeper became a thing. Um, so for a lot of those part-time employees, JobKeeper was probably more money um, than 60% of their part-time hours. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and I'm not sure what happened there around, you know, which one sort of won out in the end. Like if employers did JobKeeper instead, who knows? Um, so that was quite an early one. Um, that was sort of just done and dusted. Uh, another interesting one is Sorry, also... Sorry, I have a quick question about that one. Do you yeah. know, like, the some of these agreements, um, were they ever... I haven't read anything about, like, the permanence of them. Like that so, one they're is, all time-limited. They all are time-limited? Yeah. Okay, well, that's... that's so, the, the NTU framework was meant to be for 12 months. That's so, um, so long. <laughs> this, this HOSPO deal, I don't know how long it is, but it's... Because there are changes to... there. There's allowances within the Fair Works Fair Work Commission to change an award in an emergency for a limited time. Um, so that's that's what all most of these are. There was the SDA ACTU deal with McDonald's and the Australian Industry Group. So that was where um, so McDonald's, you know, and the interesting with hospitality, I think it's the experience can be quite uneven. There probably hospitality businesses that haven't really suffered that much yeah. because a lot of people are home, they're getting deliveries, whatever. Um, you know, restaurants, I think, particularly probably have suffered a fair bit. Yeah. Um, but there's elements of hospitality that have probably potentially increased their business. Um, McDonald's, I would say, probably, I don't, I can't see them having, probably having and suffered as much as other industries. No. Um, they also became essential services when they started delivering bread out of their driveways. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and milk. Yeah. Um, so the variations proposed there, so the SDA and McDonald's through the Australian Industry Group, which is the peak employer industry, proposed these changes, um, limiting employees' ability to refuse requests to take annual leave. Um, and what else is there? Um, they were cutting... Employees can remove strict set rosters for part-time, part-timers and cut their hours to a minimum of eight with no overtime penalty for extra hours. Um, so I think if they had to work outside their rostered hours, they got paid overtime, um, potentially. And so that was removed. Which is a fairly standard thing because a lot of people are only employed part-time because they can just say, oh, you're not getting overtime when needed. Um, and employees are also barred from um, unreasonably refusing requests to take annual leave. Oh, I already said that. So that was proposed by the SDA with support from the ACTU to the Fair Work Commission. Um, they also propose other things, um, which uh, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, which is the kind of um, underdog... The rogue union. The rogue, the awesome underdog union fighting the good fight against the, the, the SDA. Um, so they lodged a submission against that in the Fair Work Commission. Um, I think they got a few concessions. They, I think one of the concessions they got was that it was limited to July 31st, so it's only in place till July 31st. Um, and there was a few others, I think, that they got. But 
I think their God, sec- that's insane. Their secretary described it as a shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> so the best union. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so that and that was something that was supported by the ACTU um, as a as a thing to do, um, and like quite that, adamantly and publicly in favour of throwing workers like under the bus in order to be like, oh, in order to protect jobs, this nebulous feature is like we're actually going to make it so that your job is worth considerably less, but you are still technically employed, and being employed is more important than. And if you're employed, conditions. you're paying your dues. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. just kind of bizarre. Well, I think one of the things, well, I think one of the, I read somewhere that one of the reasons that 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 this deal was potentially done was was because McDonald's um, has threatened to take away payroll deduction of union dues. So payroll deduction, for people who don't know, is when um, uh, your union, if you're in the union, your union dues are taken. the The employer takes your union dues directly directly out of your pay and pays it to the union before you get paid. That was actually something that um, Campbell Newman did as soon as he got in, he took away payroll deduction for public sector union employees. Mm. Um, and that was a huge blow to the public sector union. But mm. go on. So, yeah, one of the things I think McDonald's has been doing is, or they may have already done it, I'm not sure, is that they've started taking away payroll They did deduction. do it briefly during this negotiation process to yeah. keep the SDA in line once. In line. I think, didn't the Fair Work Commission like knock it back originally? Don't know. Like they were um, said like, this is too cruel. And then it came back uh, and the second time it went through. And the SDA during that period, like stopped the payroll de- deductions for a brief period to like, I guess, it isn't amazing how employers are very good at following through with threats. And <laughs> and so I think that like the SDA are quite reliant on these co- these kind of mechanisms. They're reliant on management encouraging join the, joining the union because, you know, union... SDA negotiates below award pay agreements um, and payroll deduction is part of that function. Um, so, yeah, I think that was that was quite interesting. Um, the other one is the Together Union, which I have some experience oh, in dealing with. Oh, do go on. <laughs> um, so, th- they haven't cut any deals yet. Um, just also, just quickly, fucking God, I know everyone made fun of it at the time, but all the union name changes, they all sound like, you know, for people listening who aren't really across the nomenclature of like union fucking environment in, in Australia, God, it all just sounds like Protestant, like new age church groups. Together. together. But together. It's like United Voice and Together. Like, fuck's yeah. sake, just call yourself a union. So Together is the public sector union as well as um, they have some private sector elements but which is what i'm a part of yeah but they're largely they're the they largely concentrate on the public sector so they're the they're the previous queensland public sector union that's what they're called the qpsu i think yeah it's like a there's a a third of it is private sector yeah and then the rest is public yeah so they represent most public servants but also like they represent a lot of health workers like non-nurse non non non-nurse health workers in hospitals so admin staff um like allied health people that kind of stuff health practitioners in hospitals they represent teachers aides in schools so I guess a lot of your non-professional public servants they represent as well as your your regular public servants who work in central offices um, doing bureaucratic stuff so um, there's been a, a, a range of things that the Queensland Premier Palaszczuk has said about just sort of the union constantly says they are off the cuff remarks, um, almost like they're defending the premier. So she came out and said that there was like a pay freeze, 
um, and the initial response from the union was to members in an email uh, was that this was like a hatchet job by the Courier Mail. The Premier doesn't really mean it. Um, and she did because <laughs> it happened. Um, and the, the irony of that was so um, the, the Queensland public sector is kind of in the middle of a bunch of negotiations because there's a bunch of different enterprise bargaining agreements for different departments and multi-department um, agreements. And so some people have finished that process and some people were going through it. And the, the union had 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 um, said, okay, well, because of coronavirus, we'll basically postpone the health negotiations to help with the response. Um, and in the midst of the coronavirus, Palaszczuk has come out and said that they are freezing the pay of the health workers. Um, and I know that in, in departments like child safety and youth justice and stuff who are just about to embark on their balloting processes, that has been that got cancelled and I don't think it hasn't started again. Um, so I'm not sure what's happening with those agreements. Um, and part of that was a pay agreement to get um, $1,250 because we haven't had an agreement for like three, two or three years because negotiations have been going on for so long. Um, so that's stopped that money, that pay right, that pay going to a whole bunch of, of workers in the health sector. Um, and so I guess their initial response was, oh, this is a hatchet job. But since then, there's been a variety of announcements around um, job free, job like hiring, a hiring freeze for the public sector, um, staggered work hours to stop, to limit the travel of people. Yeah, the reducing um, contact within workplaces. Yeah. Um, which, and uh, each time one of these announcements has come out, the union's response has been, oh, we haven't been consulted about this. Uh, <laughs> I love that. We're completely powerless. Um, Hello, members. Yeah. Hello, union paying members. And so, we have no power and no one asked us our opinion on yeah. this. <laughs> and so another part of it has actually been um, a... So part of the response has been the union, I think, has been like, oh, we need to do something, right? Because this stuff keeps happening and all the rest of it. Um, and so the other response has been um, this kind of broader response from the union leadership, particularly around um, this um, developing a new a new negotiating strategy with the government. So I'll just read a quote from the Secretary Alex Scott of Together that was sent out with a union survey, which I'll go through a little bit as well, which just gives an indication of where their thinking is. So the first bit of this is quite crucial. As I said at the Together Virtual Labor Day rally on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said at the Virtual Labor Day rally on Monday. Um, yeah. Well, you know what I love about this? Because, you know, idea was it you, Robbie, or um, one of our uh, friend of the show, Dave, who described Labor Day marches as like funeral processions? I uh, think we both described it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, then is tragedy, then is farce. There's nothing more like, the, the, as I said, at the virtual Labor Day rally. Not even any fr- I no- think a part of it was like having a dance party to union songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. just like... Well, you, had to, completely- you had to buy your own beer. Usually you get free beer. Man. Yeah. Beer. They should have fucking, at least the very fucking least could have sent out a beer. Whatever fucking like... Oh, God. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So... <laughs> yeah. So, there it goes on and it's basically said, I believe we have an opportunity and should be advocating for a better public sector rather than just responding to the government announcements. Um, I've been discussing with Together Delegates and Branch Executive whether we should be seeking a new style of positive engagement with the government. 
where union members can propose solutions to the current budget crisis and also discuss how to reform the public sector so we are not asked to do more with less again and again. This sort of engagement is not without risks to our union. We know it's always easy to throw rocks from the outside rather than trying to influence the decisions before they are made. (laughs) However, I believe that given the scale of the economic and budget crisis that we should take this risk. So he's basically proposing a, you know, in-house strategy. And then, so then we got this survey. Um, Most, uh, the most egregious, which was basically asking members if they would support a new style of a, Accord, quote unquote, and this was before all the. This, They've this been going on about like the new accord yeah. for a, a while now, and um, now they have the opportunity. And so this was before like, all this yes. recent discussion had happened, and then, but I think the worst question was, I think it was quite close to the start, where it was basically had a series of conditions, like what's most important to you, pay, conditions, job security, like all these things. Um, and you couldn't, it says, oh, you have to rank them by importance, right? And so, but you couldn't rank everyone as, each one as important. It made <laughs> you decide which was the most important and which was the least important. Incredible. <laughs> each of them were like super important to like a, a same person. So, um, it's basically them getting permission to trade away things in this accord environment um, and not actually doing anything to, you know, against potential cuts because really want unions like because we've talked a lot about accord 1.0 the tragedy one as you know like unions ended up functioning as these institutions that were very effective at at demobilizing and co-opting the labor movement like the union as the union bureaucracy and institution was very good at just dragging this powerful labor movement and and um subordinating it to the interests of the state and a little bit to capital um, you know, thank you, Liz Humphreys, for all of that analysis. But this is such a good, really, like, material example of what that is. Like, that question where you couldn't... Where you were like, you... It's like you can have job security or you can have wages, good wages, but you can't have both. Well, there were six questions and you had to rank them one to six. So, at the end of the survey of the people who do it, they're going to have this result which basically says, oh, this is what people think is the most important. Um, this So, we'll trade away the least important thing, yeah. right? Um, like it's just when you yeah. see those agreements as like you know point up point down kind of like changes as opposed to oh this is actually affecting someone's entire life you well, expect it, to be all of these things are so goddamn well, it was important so to transparent to me <laughs> yeah. what, they, what they were getting permission to do um, and I don't know how many people did that, did that survey but so that gives you a flavour I think of of that and just on the flip side so at the same time as all this stuff's happening um, the there was a court case that was decided I think this Last week, um, yeah, the, the Rosado decision, um, this where the CFMU took a, comp- a court company to ca- uh, company to court over co- kind of like long term or permanent casuals, um, and the court agree- agreed that um, you know like if you are a long term casual, you're basically a permanent employee and you are entitled to sick pay and all the rest of it. Um, so that happened this week. So obviously the CFMU were not like oh. There's a budget, there's a crisis, we should pull our court case or whatever. They pursued that and, and won. Um, there was also Rafu who refused to bow to the um, ACTU and SDA and the bosses around, you know, the changes to the award conditions um, in 
you know, one of the lowest paid sectors in the economy. Um, and essential workers as well. Yeah. Often, like food, like yep. quite literally got- the only part of the economy that continued to function yep. during this entire thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was partly their, their efforts that got it restricted to July 1st. Um, I think mostly their efforts. Um, and then uh, there was a recent, there was a, the, the ET, the electrical trade union has been passing around a thing. Apparently their peak industry body um, was also trying to get changes to the award um, was lobbying and putting in submissions and had been talking to the government about changing the award conditions for the electrical trade industry. Um, and that's they've now pulled that after pressure from the union. So I think, you know, those, particularly the CFMU and the ETU, Heroes. highly organised sectors. favourite union, to be honest. Yeah, highly organ- but highly organised in the workplace. And I think it just gives you a flavour of, you know, like... And uh, the CFMU also came out and opposed the ACTUSTA deal and called it like crap. So I think it just gives you an idea of, you know, where you have a highly organised union in the workplace um, that, you know, is not the best union in the world or whatever, but the idea of taking pay cuts to save the bosses would just be an anathema, you know, in some on some level. So I think, um, yeah, I think I just think that gives you an idea of, of what's what's sort of happening out there. And what's important about that, just from a broader strategic point of view, because I think it's easy to be caught if you're following it online, that like, well, the money has to come from somewhere. And I and I think there's like, it's quite a seductive, it's a f- seductive form of reasoning to say, well, the bosses are losing lots of money, like a particular industry or a particular business is really suffering. And if we don't take pay cuts and if we don't take a reduction in conditions, then everyone's going to lose their job. And what happens there is that the you know like we you know there's a lot of analysis of capitalism where the site of the contradiction, and at that point the site of the contradiction is at the workplace. It's like workers are drawing wages, and that is drawing down on the profitability or the viability of a business or an industry. And like the good unions, the CFMEU, the ETU, RAFU are like, well, no fuck off. There's a lot of money in capitalism still. Like, you know, you earn bi- how much last year, you're going to earn how much next year. Yeah, but but also like, you know, the bill- the number of billionaires, you know, the billionaires have accrued a lot of extra 400 billion dollars of extra wealth in the US. Like the top 1% in Australia is worth has 1.3 1.3 trillion dollars of wealth. A lot of fucking wealth around force the contradiction somewhere else. And you know, like what that means is saying no, we will not suffer the consequences of your fucked up economic system. Go and fucking deal with it yourselves. And like it was most obvious with the NTEU. But I think when you read that online or you see that and you'll see a lot of labor hacks and a lot of fucking idiots online being like, well, what are they meant to do? And it's like, go fucking take it from the massive, you know, banks who earned $42 billion in revenue last year. Go take it from the mining corporations who made $480 billion exporting minerals offshore just in Queensland alone in the last 10 years. Go to one of those fuckers and take it off them. And for, because, you know, the other thing as well is like Morrison and the federal government are clearly very vulnerable. We've talked before about it's not, they're not strong. It's just Labor's weaker. And they, and they folded on a lot of things and like they're socially vulnerable and they can't afford, industry and capitalism will be willing to sacrifice retaining higher wages if it means retaining the basic functionality of Australian capitalism, which is the CFMU were right. They made the call and they got it fucking right. Uh, And it's... What's interesting is why so many, you know, like we've talked about this at a broader structural level, why so many unions get drawn into that reasoning. Um, And as I think, Robbie, you're correctly stating, it's the lack of a democratic or some 
vestiges of an, a genuine membership organization because the material interests of the bureaucrats of the unions probably more lie with people like Morrison than they do with the average like United Voice worker, for instance, who, you know, when Robbie and I worked in the call center, what's so fucking offensive about that UWU deal is they're some of the poorest people. Like you call them, they'll be like, oh, can I send you an e-? You'd be like, oh, can I send you an email about like this union event coming up? And they're like, I don't have internet because I can't afford it. And these are the fuckers, these are the, like, the fuckers at the union bureaucracy, the ones you can take a 50% pay cut. Like, what the fuck do they think is going to happen to these people's lives? Anyway, this is really fucking annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but I think it's also, so I think it's, the, the position of the union bureaucracy I think is interesting because obviously they exist to negotiate. Right, mm-hmm. that's their that's their role and their function yeah. is to negotiate between capital and labor. And I think um, when you don't have anything to pressure bosses with, because your union has consistently run down your organization in the workplace, you have to accept shitter and shitter deals. Um, so, but also at the same time, fundamentally believe that you're doing good. Yeah. So that's why they're like, oh no, our deal is actually really good because they probably genuinely believe that it's terrible, but. They probably think they're doing a really good thing. Yeah, um, like the like in, in the public sector, for example, where the union movement is particular is is a bit stronger than elsewhere. Like in in Queensland, outside of particular sectors, like most people, most workers would probably see it as a, as a lobby group. Yeah, at, um, to lobby for pay increases at at EBA time, mm-hmm. um, because there is very little to no um, attempt to actually organise around. Um, workplace stuff like around I've literally never received contact from my union about my actual workplace yeah and so there's no and this is you know like and I think the interesting thing with coronavirus is there is going to be workplace health and safety stuff around social distancing which will become an issue potentially um, and people being exposed at work um, and how that's actually dealt with um, by bosses but also by Unions in because that's outside the bargaining process. How much and the of unions like, have become so into the bargaining? Do you reckon like a part of this like lack of organisation as well is just because say for instance like with me right, for like it's just a lack of like organisers on the ground to help workers organise in the workplace because like for me instance I'm the one person that I know of who's unionised in my floor of maybe like a hundred people. I've got no idea beyond like asking people that had to join a union, like how to organize it. But in the private sector part of together, there's like maybe three or four organizers for 5,000 workers. Like, and I mean, some of those organizers are really good. Like I've met some of them and they're like pretty decent people with good politics, but there's only so many of them to like run around and they're working like 60 hour weeks. There's like, is a part of it that, you know, most, a lot of the union Jews go into fucking, Donations to the Labor Party. Donations to the Labor Party or Alex Scott's, you know, salary. It's like, you know. Yeah. I think that like the basic tools aren't there for members to organize. So like um, like in, in my workplace, we've had to develop, you know, basic stuff like a strategy document with some dot points about what are the core issues in our workplace that are, you know, ubiquitous across the workplace that we need to organize around. Um, obviously, there's there's support to people who are suffering, who are who are getting hammered by management of particular things. But there's also issues workplace wide, so it's identifying those issues and having chats with that about the current union members that are there to be like, well, this is an issue for everyone. Um, it's also even basic stuff like like you know an issue register. 
So every time an issue is raised with you, you put it in a spreadsheet. Or just even like a very obvious, like here's the person you contact with your issues. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> like I, like in the workplace and even like some, and like, so you, so a lot of humans have very little confidence in organizing because there's no actual, you know, little guide or process mm. or a little thing to help you out. Oh, so this is what's happened in this workplace in the last five years because we've got a, a little register with all the issues on it and how they were resolved. Oh, this same thing that's happening now actually happened two years ago. Let's use the same... Sh- There's no institutional memory. There's no um, you know, institutional experience around organizing in workplaces. There's a few pockets where there, that exists, but very, very little... Um, that is not sort of spread across by the union particularly. And as a union member, it's actually quite difficult to talk to other union members. Um, it takes you quite a while to get in contact with other union, the other disparate union members to talk about this kind of stuff. Because it's against the interest of the union bureaucracy if you be, for them to facilitate that as well. And like, um, yeah, I think, Callum, it's two things. It's one, it's not within the interests. It was never... and. I got this sense, especially even just like Robbie and I definitely got this sense, even just working in the call centre at United Voice. It was never within the interests of the union bureaucracy for a union membership to develop its own consciousness or its own ability to organise above and beyond um, like the basics of what it, of the union as an institution wanted them to do, which was to be a member, remain a member, and then shut the fuck up until EBA time, and then you do what you're told. And that was it. Uh, and like apart from that, fuck off. And so um, most unions, most union bureaucracies have a fund. Um, I don't know if all have this, but most a lot, a lot do. So all the current group of the bureaucrats pay a tithe to a fund um, that basically exists. So if they ever get a challenge, they can use that fund to fund their their campaign against the challenge. And and a challenge is like challenges in like to remove Alex Scott as the president of Together. Um, or to remove Gary Bullock as the president of the uh, uh, secretary of the UWU, um, uh, like that's him. So if a union delegate gets up ahead of steam and thinks it's a real democracy here, then all of a sudden a one million dollar weight ton falls on the head of that delegate, and they get fucked. Like, and there's I don't I probably shouldn't say it. Like, I don't know. Like, no one. I'm not sure how many people that could sue us listen to this. I was going to say no one listens to this. But one of you is listening to this because right now you're listening to my voice and suck shit you're listening to this. Is like the stories we heard about like there was a guy that we worked with in the, in the call center at United Voice who was one of the people who made a failed leadership attempt at, at the union. And like what happens when you go up against the union bureaucracy is A, you get immediately fucked. But then you get fired and fucked and sent to like the backwater, like the Siberia, which is where Robbie and I worked. It was like the Siberia of the union movement. Yeah, where we belonged. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. Like tears were the, shed. Is that the Greens? <laughs> yeah. well, no, no but it was... But, but, <laughs> yeah. but what, what it means is that usually the only ways that union leaderships actually change is when a significant layer or majority of the current bureaucracy opposed oppose that bureaucracy all the factions like yeah yeah the, the dynamics of the um, labor and left and right and factions. so like like I, I i was helped out a little bit this there was kind of like a left challenge to um the a- amw the australian medical workers union in the sort of the early 2000s um and the, 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 there was a guy who ran and a few other people ran with him um and it was a pretty significant challenge like i think it got about 30 percent of the vote um so in whilst they were challenging and AM, amw is one of the big like it's it's still quite big 
um, big Labour Party contributor, um, the the kind of you know union establishment team um, were able to f- to self fund, or I'm not sure how they funded it actually. They sent a letter to every member in the state, a mail out that was basically a shit sheet about the other candidate. <laughs> um, and he's like, he's still a thief set. Um, but yeah, I I th- so it. I think that that's kind of what, if if you, yeah, that's what you're up, that's what you're up against, right? Like, there, it's an entrenched system that self-replicates. And the um, other thing we haven't really mentioned is the Labor Party. Yeah. And like, the other way it's an entrenched system that self-replicates is, um, actually, Tad and Liz... Um, Liz Humphreys and Tad Tietz wrote about this really well. There's a little section, I should pull it up, from the 2013 article about the Qantas dispute, where they were like, what happened in the 80s and 90s at a broader strategic level was all of a sudden unions said, we'll no longer win gains at the workplace, we'll win gains in politics. What that means is all of the institutions of union bureaucracies, their like resources, all were directed towards contests within the Labour Party because their interests were going to be won or lost within the institution of the Labour Party. Was this after they'd been spanked in the pilot strike? Uh, no, it was... Yeah, it was more... Well, I mean, like, the unions did that to themselves, really, I would say. But like, We'll spank ourselves for you. <laughs> yeah, um, but... Um, no, it was when they'd made the call to shift it into the accord. You know, we don't need to... We won't go into this a little later, maybe. But, like... Um, and I think this is a perfect... The other thing here is that unions now, like, for instance, union membership drives often are about changing the dynamics and the balance of power within the Labor Party. Because if a union has a certain number of members, it changes the number of votes they get on state conference floor in the Labor Party. Um, And that's part of the reason that um, the left of the Labor Party um, was able to take power in Queensland. Fat lot of fucking good it did, did it? And like, really, like the ideology of the Labor Party never changed. Hey, Jackie tried as a progressive hero. (laughs) Yeah, but one of the things, the calls that I used to have to make when I was a... Keep me in mind... Like, we were in a, call, a union that represented some of the poorest workers in Australia, like cleaners, teachers' aides, security guards, whatever. Um, we were on the phone, and this is, a you know, on paid union time. I was calling new United Voice Labor members and then branch stacking, like, being like, oh, we call them, we'd be, the script would be like, oh, you know, welcome to the Labor Party. You should join this branch. Oh, I don't know. Like, no, you should join this branch. Oh, okay, I'll join this branch. Great. Okay, bye. That was literally the fucking job. That was what we were paid to do. That's where union resources were going. I never did that. I refused. Yeah. Well, some Robbie had higher morals than I did. <laughs> you know, some of us needed to earn a fucking wage. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I, you know, I've suffered for my swings. I'm in the greens now. <laughs> That's pretty big penance. <laughs> Far Siberia. Parody. <laughs> Parody. Uh, so there's that as well. Like you're like, it's an institutional thing. Not only is there like an interest to retaining power and re- reducing themselves, they don't care so much about. They don't think they'll win gains via industry bargaining or enterprise bargaining so much as they will via politics. Which is interesting now, which is the newer cause. Yeah. Whereas like the which is my wonderful pivot that's going on right now um, is like the new engagement with politics, but not just so that. smooth, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Um, this is how I'm still single. <laughs> <laughs> what's your What's your Twitter handle? How can they add you? Um, on Tinder, be near me when I'm on Tinder. <laughs> um, is like the new engagement with politics, but like at a point, semi abandoning the Labor Party in an attempt to just engage directly with the state itself, and it, the state itself now is the Liberals, um, and. 
that idea of oh we can win games in politics by playing the game properly as opposed to uh in the context especially of throwing all of their members under the bus so what's going on with the new accord who's been following this i've been reading a little bit about it and like there's a whole bunch of different economic moving parts to it there's um skills wallets which is what michaelia uh cash announced uh, wait what like the Joe Swinson yeah, yeah, no, job it, maker. It's job, basically, that's what job maker is. Oh, it's it's not exactly what Joe Swinson was announcing, but it was just like um, it was. Oh, we need to reform how skills and skills are prioritized at a national level, and wallets are prioritized. Um, it's a bit like vague, but it's basically just saying, oh, um, our education system isn't prioritizing the needs of business and industry, and we should reorientate that so it prepares people to go into industry. Um, there's a big changes coming to propose to um, industrial relations with like award simplification, um, enterprise agreements, um, casuals and fixed term employees, compliance and enforcement to make sure people are paid properly, which is the LMP's big thing to throw in at shit unions like the um, SDA. Um, and then establishment of green greenfields agreements. So throwing out a lot of the legacy of what unions have actually achieved that are good for workers um, and in favor of new agreements, which are probably just going to be the shit that they're negotiating now. And so it seems like they are going to set up these like working groups, like government working groups on economic rebuilding. Um, And, you know, the ACTU, I guess, with their experience of being in this kind of crisis response thing that um, Callum, you were talking about before the, strange article on the financial review with the interviews with Sally McManus and Christian Porter about how much, how much they were in love working together and, you know, da, 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 and that kind of stuff. Um, and you should read out because I see you've posted here in the show notes, the like Christian Porter, Sally McManus, best friends. Yeah. Some prices. real doozies. Yeah. I would um, honestly just go through this section cause it's fucked. Uh, well, so apparently Christian Porter said Greg Combe suggested setting up this thing. So Greg Combe is an ex-secretary of the ACTU. Um, also which, a lobbyist for Origin. Yeah. So he, he suggested that Christian Porter set it up. Um, and I think some of the choice quotes are probably like that. Like, Sally says to Sally McManus, we'll be putting forward views that the government doesn't necessarily agree with, but, with, but what Christian actually does is interrogate it. He'll ask questions. <laughs> he'll probe and want to understand the argument. Oh, he'll probe. And then he says... <laughs> And then he says, yeah, absolutely. Sally's intelligent, rational, reasonable. We've both got theoretical views that we start from, but in wildly changing, extraordinary circumstances, sometimes those theoretical views don't fit perfectly into the extraordinary circumstances. Extraordinary. Um, And then Sally McMahon is saying, the fundamental shift in politics has been governments, unions, and employers working cooperatively for the common good. Australians have welcomed this and are unlikely to forget it because this has led to some of the you best decisions governments have made. <laughs> How far? Oh, How far from like... Fucking un- hell! Okay, <laughs> by the way, they fucking change the rules thing. Like, God, it, can I just say, you know how the virtual union rally, the entire federal election, 2019 federal election, was a virtual union rally <laughs> with the perspective of the change the rules campaign? Because, like, they're like, we're at the height... Change the rules, 2019. There's a serious class conflict going on between the bosses <laughs> and the workers. Like, this is the fucking make or break campaign. Like, you know, we've been fucked over by laws that the Labour Party wrote. Um, <laughs> and we're going to fight back against the Labour Party. <laughs> um, and that, like, literally a year later, Sally's like, Kristen, my best friend. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, even how far is this from when she... It was like, 
I remember the first time Sally came on my radar was that interview um, where she was like, you know, I believe laws should be broken yeah. if they're unjust. And there was like a moment that was like, oh, wait, what, what was this? And then it went into, oh, no, we're not going to break the rules. We're going to change the rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's and this. Now it's this. Yeah, it's and I, really, um, so I think all of this has been, so the government, so the, the, when, when ScoMo did this speech about when he mentioned the accord and stuff, it was it was also they withdrew the, in, the, the that ensuring integrity legislation. Yeah. Um, so I think basically the Sally Mouse and ACT have said, oh, well, it's because of our, you know, participation in these things that that's why they've withdrawn this 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 legislation. Not that it got blocked in the Senate like multiple no. times. No, and so I think there's that. And there's actually another... So that's... So she, there's also an article in the Australian which she wrote, which people should read if they have access to, um, where it's kind of her laying out the strategy kind of thing. Um, and it just sort of says similar things to the interview, so I'm not really going to quote from it or anything but it sort of just says that um that they'll be part of this these round table and discussions and um that like they've accepted the invitation to participate in the government's working group round table process um and we can only secure a better stronger australia if working people have permanent well paid and and the entitlements that permanent well paid work and the entitlements that come with it so i think like that, that's obviously the a key part of their strategy um but there's also a, there was also a really great article written earlier this week, or maybe late last week, um, by Frank Bongiorno, a historian from ANU. Graves historian. Yeah, about about the accord. Um, so I think it's worth delving into that a little bit about the actual accord that happened in the 80s. Mm, um, something our listeners aren't familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> well, he made some points. I think he made some really interesting points that obviously, uh, like I think. It, for people who don't know his work, I really encourage reading it. He's a very accessible um, historian who writes about, you know, sort of um, the. He writes, I guess he writes about the eighties a lot. Um, yeah, he wrote a great history of the eighties. Yeah, and it's actually really, um, yeah, the way he writes is I almost describe it as like bouncy. You can kind of you really get, it has a good flow. Um, so bouncy like frame. the eighties. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, uh, I wasn't alive then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a well, child. You, you, <laughs> um, Robbie so. was 20 in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> big hair, big yeah. shoulder pads, flouncy. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie was actually the secretary of the ACTU in the 80s. Robbie was under his second divorce. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I think he... It's interesting because I think the way it's being pitched at the moment, I think we've seen a lot of journalists um, try and do history, which is quite funny, um, when they talk about it as this kind of grand agreement between like unions and business um, with the, the government as kind of this facilitator. Um, but in his article, I think he really lays it out. It was an agreement between the Labor Party and unions. Yes. And it was a political agreement between them. Um, the, the business and, wasn't involved. No, didn't include like, them at all. They, they were yeah. never asked. No. Um, and so I guess it was, you know, he sort of says it was not based on the idea of the government sitting down with one interest among many and having a pleasant chat about industrial relations law. It assumed that unions or at least their leading officials would be brought into the policymaking process of government. Um, and he said, nor was the accord an, an effort to reform the industrial relations system. On the contrary, it depended on the existence of strong unions, a centralized system of wage determination, and an empowered arbitration process, the combination that had underpinned Australian industrial relations since the, the early years of the century. So it was the fact that the unions did have, at that point, 50% of workers in the, mm. were in unions, um, that you know they were able to actually, the Labor Party was brought them into that process. 
Um, so I think that's quite important in the current context because at the moment you have a range of hollowed out institutions. So you have hollowed out political parties, hollowed out unions, trying to impose this kind of technocratic process. On civil society. And Yeah, on civil And even the business lobby groups, you could even say that, you know, what are they... They well, don't represent and most businesses. Out. We don't talk yeah. about it enough, but the way they're hollowed out is that, like in a few ways, like the ownership structures of a lot of them uh, have either been like centralized under large um, monopolization processes where the shareholders exist all across the world. Like they're not, there's not a domestic, the domestic Australian capitalist class is much weaker, except I would argue amongst the banking and mining industry, where I think like people like Twiggy Forrest and um, Clive Palmer and Gina Reinhart still wield clearly substantial And power. you can say that they haven't really figured in this process. No. It's been the Australian Industry Group, which is one of the oldest, um, which is the kind of the, the traditional manufacturing kind of um, industry group that's obviously branched out into other industries. But they're all kind of trying to cobble together this technocratic thing through this roundtable process. Because I think, I guess, the confusion is... Um, at the, after the accords were agreed at like the Labour Party conference before Bob Hawke got elected... Um, in 1983, after he elected, he had that thing in the business summit. Yeah, we, we, um, yes. where you know union leaders and businesses, business people got together and they had this big chat. Um, kind of like when Rudd, I don't know if you remember when Rudd got elected. The ideas, that, summit. the ideas summit oh, thing that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's it. Yeah, you know, it's quite hilarious that Labor just keeps repeating the same things um, in a worse and worse, yeah, fashion. yeah worse, worse fashion. Um, so I think a lot of people associate that with the accord, but I don't think it. It really didn't have anything to do with that. Um, and I think the other point he makes, which is really interesting, is that the accord was actually very co- coercive. It wasn't well, about... it went cons- after unions. Yeah. It fucked the unions that like, went against it. It wasn't about consensus building. If you stepped out of line, they just... So they so the unions that did step out of line, which were the New South Wales Builders Labor's Federation and the Pilots Union, were both deregistered. There's the famous one as well of, of like confectionery workers as well. They were thrown under the bus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they had a long strike in, in Melbourne about about that as well. But I guess the famous examples are the New South Wales BLF, which refused to go along with it. They were deregistered as a union by the ACTU. Um, the Builders Workers Industrial Union, which was actually the precursor to the CFMEU, um, worked with the bosses to use the clothes shop against the BLF. So you couldn't go to work unless you had a BWIU ticket. So the, you couldn't get a job if you had a BLF ticket. Um, so the, like it wasn't like the, like the ACTU stood back and did nothing. They actively intervened in deregistering the union and then making work only allowed through another an opposition union. Um, and then, there, of course, there was a pilot strike where they sent, they used army pilots to break the strike, with the with the tacit consent of the ACTU yeah. at the time. So it was extremely coercive, um, and I think then that dovetails into this idea now um, that you see a lot amongst Labor Party people, but also the journalists and stuff, um, particularly on what I would describe as progressives. <laughs> um, For those who don't know, Robbie's making a. Motion with his hand when he says progressives. Um, I won't say what that motion is. <laughs> um, so, is, uh, and I kind of like people like Catherine Murth- Murphy from The Guardian, oh. um, George Megalogenes, um, Big Seven Great who else? <laughs> Like they kind of see the hawk era as this golden age of gov- of governance oh, and just... like s- consensus building and reform and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
they don't mention that you know it was largely done on coerce and we were talking about this before the podcast i think that for a lot of people i suppose of that generation which were probably too too young for to experience the whitlam defeat but live through its aftermath and then you get the election of hawk um and you i guess it, it you, you see progress right on yeah, some yeah. level and I think, um, like Laura Tingle as well, when she writes about, you know... Um, Lee Sales. Uh, I don't know about Lee Sales, but Laura Tingle, when she writes, writes about the public service particularly, um, she wrote quite an interesting article about the, the current public service. Yeah, in the, was it the um, quarterly essay? Yeah, right? yeah, like a couple of years ago. And it contrasts with this Hawke era where you had this, you know, this um, evidence-based policy and was all done in this consensus way and all this kind of stuff. Um, so there's this real, like, I think, I think that that kind of idea of that era of government does more, plays more, builds the accord more than the actual accord itself. Um, and that plays more into what's informing people's idea of what the accord is now, I think. There's a lot of history making in like in the aftermath of it when it's like the people who were the people who crushed those breakout unions um, well, are deciding that this is what the history of the accords was. And yeah. I would say there's also a very substantial layer who don't know what the fucking accord is. Yeah. But who experience it as a betrayal. Like, and, or, uh, like, experience it as the break with the union movement. Like, it's obviously we've talked a lot about the accord in terms of it precipitating a massive decline in union membership. But I reckon there's a lot of people who just experience it as, like, my wages, like, you know, like, my wages and conditions were reduced, like... I think the other thing we talked before about the other thing why Callum, why your workplace isn't organizing very well is because what that accord did is that they shifted the strategy away from industrial organizing. You snapped, you broke the back of the like of the conveyor belt of of passing down institutional knowledge of how you win industrial fights because unions didn't have them anymore. So what's the point of being a member of a lobby group that will exist without your membership anyway? Because your membership as it actually isn't like it, it's, immediate material power for you is all of a sudden you feel power in the workplace and it is an intoxicating feeling feeling power in your workplace like i remember um listening to this like fuck i haven't experienced it but like listening to this podcast about these workers in the u.s so they're like we showed up the next day after we won the strike and the bosses were really deferential and we felt like we were strutting around like we owned the place and that expe- material experience was experienced by a large percentage of the Australian population up until the Accord. Well, not always, but certainly more so than up until the Accord period. So I think the other thing is that like no one knows what the Accord... A lot of people don't know what the Accord as a name means or represents, but they have an experiential shift for that section of the workforce in that, in that period. Something that a lot of Australian workers now would never have experienced actual power in the workplace. And they, they definitely feel the effects decades later, um, which is the conditions we're living through at the moment yes yeah and then sorry i was just gonna say um yeah just sort of with that as well like the institutional knowledge i mean any organizers with that who have the you know any organizers that have that knowledge would probably have been burnt out of the union movement long ago and if any new people you know i know a few of them who are currently in the union movement are probably in the process of burning out or have already burnt out. So, and all that's left are the, the, all that's left are the scum that floats on top and all the labor hacks. So, <laughs> yeah. So now we get to the new accord, which like I saw Godfrey Moe's uh, 
he's a executive member of the UDW. I don't know what that means actually. Um, he's from the member, UDW side. Director. Yeah, he's on the he's on the good side. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, was um, you know the first is a tragedy, second is a farce, and I think Robbie, you alluded to it. But like now they're trying to go through this process where union membership is not 50% anymore, where they wield genuine power and actually was six... While the Accord was wildly successful at its aim, suppressing workers' wages and demobilising the labour movement. Now that'll be very... Like, what's interesting is, like, in one sense, it's going to be much more fucking difficult to discipline a workplace where the institutions that are attempting to do it no longer have any connection into the union movement because now union membership's 14% and 7% in the private sector. And then the other thing, Robbie, you mentioned this off-air. I'm not sure who was saying this. It was like... Why do we expect unions to speak for workers when they represent 14% of the workforce? Well, I think it was a, there was like a tweet battle. Um, I'm not on Twitter, but I saw it on the internet, I think. Um, Lee Sales from the 7.30 report was like, you know, basically why why are, you, why are just unions getting a seat at the table when they represent a yeah. pretty small section of the workforce? Um, and I think Sally McManus was responding to it. I didn't read a response, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think there is an assumption on the left that unions represent the working class, um, and that you know, in some sort of institutional historical way, is probably true. Um, but I guess in kind of functional reality, that old um, thing. is <laughs> is probably not. And I think the way they get around that is, um, I know they've said, I've seen Salik Mena say a number of times that um, unions negotiate EBAs that cover sixty percent of the workforce. Yes. Um, which is even more of an indictment on their strategy because if that is the case, then, well... Historic low wage growth <laughs> would suggest that that's not really fucking working <laughs> yeah. or like the share of income going to wages yeah. that it's historic, lower than it's ever been in Australian history. Yeah, it's like, well, it's not even... And then if or you are doing that and it's successful, then if it, if, if it was successful, like if they were getting big pay increases, it's like, well, why are people joining with the union then? You know, like... <laughs> So, so, how do we reckon the new accords are going to be different then? Like, what's it's just—it's a good question. Like, will it work? <laughs> Who knows? I don't think it's gonna. I don't. No way, it's gonna happen. Well, like the main blabber. reason that yeah, the unions are Robbie. participating is that oh, we've—they've withdrawn the union busting bill. Um, it's like, and so the unions are like, oh, they've withdrawn this, which means they're going to negotiate in good faith. And it's like, no, of course not. Like, are you morons? I agree with Robbie. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think there'll be a lot of like song and games, and and then austerity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, probably with the union support, like the AC, you know, the ACTU supporting it. Because, like, why negotiate? Title like, right there. Why negotiate? You know, I was going to say don't negotiate with terrorists, but like, but these terrorists don't have any bombs. Like, <laughs> like they're you know they're they're fake bombs. They're like you know like it's it's flop. two people with like hot dogs strapped to their chest and yeah. yelling at each other. Like, I think the interesting thing will be. If there is a big, if there is actually a significant depression slash recession, um, and like the construction industry starts to really get hammered, what happens there? Um, and in other in other industries that haven't really been impacted yet, because I know talking to people, they were like, oh yeah, we've got about three or four months of work, ongoing work, but everyone's sort of unclear about what happens so after that. There's been, and they've all been working a lot of those industries um, have still been working through all this. Yeah. There's um, a mate in my footy team who builds bridges, like is, is works it and like is, I think he is a project manager or something, but like um, he, they've just been working, even at the height of the crisis, they were just still building this bridge. 
Um, well, I just left my job um, at a local Brisbane um, pharmaceutical company, and during the whole thing, it was continuing as normal. The, the factory and headquarters itself, which usually has about 250 people at it, um, was empty except for like essential workers, like the factory workers and people who work like myself in microbiology and stuff like that. Um, but was pumping actually during the whole crisis. Cause yeah, because everyone production. wants to get pharmacy. Well, the, read the construction industry, Robbie, the um, HIA or whatever it is, I think it's like a housing industry body, pointed out that housing, um, dwelling new dwelling construction in Queensland would fall by 40% by the end of this year. And I know that, um, so the construction is the third largest employer in Queensland. So it's like, I think it's like 250,000 people are, empl- are, are employed in construction in Queensland. That, uh, the number of people on the payroll decreased by 5% last month, just last month. So that's represents about 11,000 workers. Um, and like even between, and even before that, the construction industry was already in decline. So like... Well, that's what I was going to say as well is my workplace expects like in the coming months for it to crash. They were booming during the crisis because everyone was concerned about health. infections and health and stuff like that. But they fully expect in the next couple of months to a year to be a significant slump. And this is what we were just talking about at the start of the podcast. And maybe it's maybe a good place to sort of end it on because I know we've been going for a bit long. Yeah. But um, is this how it has been kicked down the road? Like everything that sort of did peak, like Mark's old work is now starting to wind down. I know that like, you know, with the unis and um, my partner's work, you know, yes, they're going to start going back to work on campus, but all the international students are still not there anymore. So it's like, oh, well, maybe a few more months and then that'll all start just falling in. And then once all that starts collapsing, you've got the big debt bubbles that are just, like I said before, just hovering like big dark shadows. Something's going to prick them. And I'm, Unless you've got some more, cane, you know, stimulus coming from Scott, Scott, Scott Morrison's Morrison government, I don't think it's going to hold. No, and I just don't think like the crisis is going to be bigger, so big that none of these institutions have any kind of weight to really influence in a particular direction. Like even the even the the government, I think. Mm. So, um, in, in the way, in, like in the in the politics of influencing it, rather than the practical, the government does have the power to obviously influence a crisis if they like um, significantly. But I think politically, they're all such hollowed out institutions trying to pull together this like national strategy. Um, like I just not going to go anywhere. And I think there's going to be a lot of suffering as a result. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know that's that's kind of what's going to happen. Like, I mean, at my work, they've already, they're we're already being told in in like like t- like team meetings of our team about the the quote unquote new fiscal realities mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, and that's happening even now. You know, um, so I wanted to yeah, and who I, knows what's going to happen in in six months time. And if you're wondering, like sitting here wondering, like, oh, this is all very dour and there's nowhere to go, and like, you know, I'm biased, like. Um, where ro- Queensland Greens, fucking great organisation, doing some good shit. But I just mean more broadly, <laughs> in terms of where power is in society and things like that. Don't forget that the very rich and big corporations are still just fucking raking it in, like international capitalism and Australian capitalism. Export industries, in particular mining, do very fucking well. Like the mining industries in Queensland exported sixty nine billion dollars worth of resources last year alone. Like 
Majority of major business is still expected in some way to make profit. Don't get caught in the ideological trap that a recession means that like there's no money anywhere. It's basically just that the like the the model of accumulation of pro- even more profit via the exploitation of labor is breaking down in some way, and that crisis means one of two th- one of two things: I we get fucked more, or we find a way of finally taking a lot of the power and wealth out of the hands of those big corporations. So don't like if you're in your workplace or in your union and you're hearing those Robbie's line of new fiscal reality, like the new fiscal reality. Like the new, maybe the new fiscal reality is like one less yacht for like, um, like Clive Palmer or Gina Reinhardt. And I, like I think on that note, it's probably good to mention what's happening in Minneapolis at the moment. Yes, that you know, like you know, horrible situation, but they just burnt down the police station. So absolute support for the protesters. Pretty great. Um, <laughs> flood, flood. Um, for what it's worth, endorses. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I and I think it's important, like when talking about that to sort of look at, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's America. And it's like, well, you know, 14 years ago, the police station on Palm Island was also burned down. Um, so that it, it happens here as well. And deaths, average uh, deaths in custody. Totally happen, has been, have been happening since then and have been happening for a very long time. So I think, um, you know, when the chips are down, people still struggle a lot. Um, so there's always um, hope there, I think. Um, and from my perspective... At my work, at least, anyway, like there's been probably been more organising activity. It's very small. It's very fragile. Um, like a little flower, yeah. <laughs> but, a baby little bird. but it's like there's probably been more activity in the last couple of weeks than there has been for a, a very long time. And so, similar sentiments yeah. from the NTU comrade who messaged me, who was like, "Wow, we've been very mobilised." Yeah. Um, so I think there's sounds like a good, happy yeah. ending. It's like the old mole. The, yeah. the, the night, all I'd say is the night is darkest before the dawn. As, as Two-Face said in Batman, so too. <laughs> no, all good. I think that covers it. Sounds good to me. Goodbye and good Bye. luck. We'll see you in a week's time when we record our next regularly recorded flow. <laughs> Cut it. O- over Zoom. Parody. <laughs> yeah, <it's> parody. <laughs>